Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together before we... Give our attention to God's word. Would you bow with me? Fathers, we prepare to hear your word and receive it together. Uh, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us and that you would accomplish your will through your word. And I ask that you would protect me from any false teaching. Lord, help me only to preach and teach and say things that are true from your word. And please impress your word deep into our hearts and transform us and change us. And those who are here who are restless and tired and weary, may they receive rest for their souls. Those who are here who may have sin, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in their life, may they receive the perhaps uncomfortable but absolutely necessary conviction of the Holy Spirit and be freed. And for each and every person that you brought, I pray for your blessings upon them and that uh, this next, these next minutes together sitting under your word would be um, revitalizing and refreshing and renewing. That you would speak to each and every one of us right where we are in our life circumstance. Open our ears to hear you. Open our eyes to see you and open our hearts to receive your word, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So last week, as Meredith mentioned, we looked at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis and just remembered that humans are designed and meant to depend on God and do his will. And that our limitations are not only okay, they're actually good as part of the way God designed it. Uh, We're not meant to be omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient. He is all those things, and we're meant to trust in him and rely on him and do his will. So that's what we talked about last week, and we thought about how through sin, humanity has imposed independence and autonomy upon itself. We live in a self-imposed world of independence and autonomy, where we depend on ourselves and we do what we want to do. And the results of that are just rampant distress throughout all of human history. And sin has run wild, and many of our lives, even as Christians, 
tend to be marked by stress and anxiety and being overburdened, being exhausted, disjointed emotionally, isolated relationally. So it's kind of a depressing sermon last week. This week, we pick up where we left off, and we're going to think about, through several different passages, the fact that God solves our problem of trying to be like him by becoming like us. There's a theological term for this, God becoming like us. It's incarnation. That's the theological term. Incarnation. God became like us in order to save us from our self-imposed independence and autonomy. Now, if that big idea seems complicated or confusing, I, I pray that as we work through these passages, it will clarify itself. And we're going to work through a lot of passages, so you'll need a Bible in hand. And you'll need to limber up your page-flipping fingers if you want to follow along. Or you can write down the references and check after me to make sure I'm not making things up. Uh, but it'd be good if you follow along and look in your Bibles. It won't be projected because there's just too many different passages we're going to look at. We're going to think about the incarnation this morning. And I know you didn't come in here wondering about the incarnation. You came in here probably more so looking for specific help for specific things in your life. Specific needs for direction or comfort or peace. I really think that as we think about the incarnation, you will receive all those things. So we're going to be theologians for a minute. And I have racked my brain to think of a good illustration for the incarnation, for the event and the fact that God put on flesh and became like us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't think of one, um, but I did remember one that somebody else shared. Uh, a pastor named Tim Keller told this story, and I think it illustrates it pretty well. So this is all ripped from Tim Keller. And he tells the story of an author named Dorothy Sayers, who was author of many kinds of different things, essays and whatnot, but she also wrote some mystery novels. And she wrote a series of mystery novels about a, a detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. This is very British, by the way. Lord Peter Whimsey was her detective. So Dorothy Sayers was a mystery novelist, and she was one of the first women to be admitted to Oxford. Okay, so that's who she was. And she wrote this series of books about a detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. Now, Lord Peter Whimsey was a loner, and he was eccentric, and he was unhappy. He was kind of a mess of a, of a person, this character of hers. And he was alone and lonely. About halfway through this series, a new character shows up. A woman named Harriet Vane shows up in her mystery novels. Harriet Vane, the character, is a mystery novelist and one of the first women to have been admitted to Oxford. And Harriet Vane meets Lord Peter Whimsey, and they fall in love. And she, in essence, saves him from his loneliness and his unhappiness. She looked into her world that she had created through her mystery novels. And she saw her main character, who she created and had great affection for. And she wrote herself into the story in order to save him. That is something like what God has done for us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He created this whole world and each and every one of you. And he looks at his world and he looks at his creatures with great affection for us. And we, through our sin, 
have made a, a great mess of our lives. And now we, we live in self-imposed independence from God and autonomy from God and isolation from God. And he wrote himself in to the human story in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save us from these things. It's beautiful what he has done. It's beautiful what we celebrate at Christmas time, the incarnation. Consider a couple of passages with me. We'll start at John chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 14 of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And this is a sermon for another Sunday as to why, but when it says the Word, it's probably a capital W in your Bible because it's in reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, scan down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word that was in the beginning with God was God. The agent of all creation became flesh, dwelt among us. Now, Let's move over to that passage I read at the beginning, Philippians chapter 2, and look at that again. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men, and then he humbled himself further by dying on the cross. So God looks down at the plight of mankind who, through their attempts to be like him, have ruined their lives. And to solve the problem of humans trying to become like him, he becomes like us in Jesus Christ. He wrote himself into the human story and the person of Jesus Christ in order to save us from our self-imposed independence and autonomy. Now what I'd like to point out, based on the incarnation, is just three reasons why the incarnation means that we can be restful as Christians. Three restful realities related to the incarnation. The first one is Jesus came to save us from sin. Jesus came to save us from sin. Looking still at Philippians 2, look at verse 8 again. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did he have to die on the cross? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, if you're following along. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is talking about Jesus again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That reference to him making purifications for sins, that's why he had to die on the cross. To make purification for your sins and my sins. To clean up our sinfulness. Now we've been talking about the human predicament in terms of how we were designed to depend on God and do his will, but how instead we've chosen to depend on ourselves and do our own will. Now, I think that that is a valid lens to understand the human problem. But we can't forget that this, moving from here, depending on God and doing his will, to here, depending on ourselves and doing our own will, is not just bad for us, it's sin. It's direct disobedience to our creator. And sin always has consequences. So when a child directly disobeys his parents, the consequence might be a spanking or a timeout or a few less minutes of screen time or something. When a, an employee directly disobeys his boss, the consequence might be being fired or being reprimanded. When a citizen directly disobeys their king, if it's treasonous, it could result in death. And when a creature directly disobeys the creator God, the Bible teaches that the consequence is not just physical death, but eternal, total death. Now, as Advent Christians, what we believe theologically is that means annihilation, that the the soul, the whole entire being ceases to exist. A final period is put at the end of that person's existence and it is over. Most other mainline denominations believe that it is an eternal conscious torment in hell. Now, it's not my, the Lord has not impressed upon me this morning in this sermon to work it out between those two. Either way, I think we can all agree it's bad. And the worst part of it is that we are finally and fully eternally separated from God forever. No more opportunity to be reconciled to him. No more opportunity to be reunited with our creator from whom flows everything good and light and true and pure. Our independence and autonomy is sin. And it angers a righteous and holy God and it triggers his wrath. And it must be reckoned with. Now, some among us Some of you are not Christians, and you remain in your sin. And this is your destiny if something doesn't change. The good news is, God wrote himself into the human story in order to solve this problem on the cross. See, when Jesus died that bloody death on the cross, he was taking the penalty of your sin and my sin upon himself. So that anyone who would trust in him as their savior, follow him as their Lord, would receive his payment for their sins and be cleaned and purified from them. I've been praying in preparation for this service that if anyone that the Lord would choose to bring here 
this morning is in that condition. Unsaved, remaining in their sins, that they would be completely and deeply, inescapably convicted by the Holy Spirit that they need to give their lives to Jesus Christ. My invitation is just to trust and follow Jesus. Receive forgiveness for your sins before it's too late. Now, some of you are Christians, but you're not fully enjoying your salvation. You're not fully enjoying the fact that Jesus became a human and died for your sins so that you're freed from the grip of your sins, the guilt of your sins, and the filth of your sins. And you're living your life, even though you have this power, you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, tangled up in sin, weighed down with guilt, hiding with shame, living in secrecy, feeling condemned, exhausting yourself with self-justification, blaming others. I've been praying for you in preparation for this service as well, that if any of you are in that condition, that the Holy Spirit would so acutely convict you that you would not leave your pew without unloading all of that onto Christ on the cross and confessing your sins to him and receiving forgiveness from him and, uh, and praying your way into repentance from whatever sin is in your life and receiving his purification on the cross and feeling in your bones the fact that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin any longer. He sees Jesus' perfection. And you are clean and pure in his eyes and embraced by him. Jesus came to save us from sin. As we've been thinking over the last couple of weeks about the burdens of modern life and the stresses and the anxieties, how much of your burden is caused from sin? How much of your weekly burden is caused by sin? How much of your busyness is you running as fast as you can so you won't have to be still in a quiet room and face the reality of yourself and hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit? How many of the plates that you're spinning are really just an effort to keep up an appearance of who you want people to think you are? How much of your frustration each week is caused by the increasing complications of sin's consequences that just more and more tangle you up? What sins are in your life that God is saying, just repent of those and turn to me. I've made a way for you to be free through Jesus Christ. He came to save us from sin. Point number two, he came to free us from fear. And for this, in my Bible, it's just flipping one page over to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those 
who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. One of the ramifications of, of human sin is fear. Adam and Eve were immediately afraid, hiding from God. And we still reckon with fear. And we call it anxiety, but it's fear. This is a fascinating verse. This verse says that many people are subject to lifelong slavery because they are afraid of death. In trying to understand what he means, my mind goes to Romans chapter 8. And you can just listen if you want, if you're tired of flipping around, or you can flip there too. I want to read some from Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 begins with verse 1 and 2. Stating everything we've said so far in this service, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if you're in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ as your Savior and are following Christ as your Lord, you are now delivered from the law of sin and death and you're now in the kingdom of life and light. And then he goes on through chapter 8, which is an awesome chapter. It may be one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It continues to develop this idea and meditate on this idea. And then it dumps you out at the end of chapter 8 in this amazing, glorious passage that begins in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I think in Hebrews when it said that many who were enslaved to a lifelong fear of death, I think there's a lot to that, but I think part of it this passage speaks to. In Jesus... Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. In fact, death just brings us one step closer to being directly in God's presence for all eternity. And so you have, for example, Paul writing in Philippians, and we won't flip to this passage, but it's Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. And he's being persecuted, and he's actually trying to decide which he would prefer to continue to live and serve the church or go ahead and die. And the next thing he'll know is being directly in God's presence. And he sort of thinks it'd be better just to go ahead and die. 
But he loves the church, so he says, I think God will keep me here and I'll keep serving you a little while longer. But soon enough, Christ will return or I'll die and I'll get to be with him. See, because of what Jesus did when he came in the incarnation, everything is flipped on his head and even death is now our servant. God uses even death for our benefit. And it cannot separate us from his love. It only further connects us to his love. Tribulation cannot separate us from his love. Distress cannot separate us from his love. Persecution cannot separate us from his love. Famine cannot separate us from his love. Nakedness cannot separate us from his love. Danger cannot separate us from his love. The sword cannot separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us from God's love if we are in Christ Jesus. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15 54 through 57, if you've attended any funerals at all, you very likely have heard this passage. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no sting anymore for you if you're a Christian because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I was mowing a couple weeks ago, and I even had gloves on. I was very well protected. And all of a sudden, immense pain erupted on right here, the sort of bony part of my hand. And there was a yellow jacket or a hornet or something on my glove. And then as soon as I noticed that, I noticed the three more that were on my legs and the four or five more that were swarming around my mower. And I've never disembarked a mower as recklessly and as quickly as I did in that moment. And that was the only sting that I got, but it was significant. For me, and it swelled up and it hurt. Now, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? It's as if, if death is, is another one of these yellow jackets that we face in life that has a stinger and it hurts, along with distress and danger and famine and all these things Paul listed. And Christ's death on the cross removed the stinger from these things. It might as well be a butterfly landing on our hand when death comes. There's no sting there anymore. Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ took it away on the cross. And if we can face death fearlessly, which I really believe we can, and I've seen Christians face death fearlessly. If we can face death fearlessly, what can't we face fearlessly? Oh, trouble, where is your sting? Oh, suffering, where is your sting? Oh, anxiety, where is your sting? Jesus has removed the sting. So as we're thinking about burdens and being revived and restful in Christ, how much of your burden and your anxiety is due directly to fear? Unnecessary fear. Because God who gave you Jesus Christ would not withhold anything good from you. Anything bad he allows into your life, he's going to use together with everything else in your life for your good. And so we have nothing to be afraid of. Jesus came to save us from sin. He came to free us from fear. And finally, he came to get us to God. And for this, we'll go back to Hebrews. For our last couple of passages, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. 
Jesus came to get us to God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is not a word that I bet you've used last week. It's the idea of appeasement. It's the idea of God is rightly wrathful at his creation that turned their backs on him. And his wrath is coming. And Jesus steps in between and takes that wrath on our behalf. That's what the cross is about. Propitiation. Jesus absorbing the right wrath of God so that we don't have to. So that we can instead be reconciled to God. Have you ever had somebody that you really cared about mad at you? Have you ever had somebody that you really cared about refuse to talk to you because they're so angry at you? And then have you experienced the sweet relief of that tension being resolved and being able to come back together in relationship? Well, through all of human history, we have strained under the tension of a God angry at us for our sin. And one by one, as each person turns to Christ and receives that propitiation, that appeasement, and is reconciled to God, we experience that sweetness of reconciliation with him. Jesus brings us about through his incarnation. Our attempt to be God-like separates us from God. Jesus becoming like a human brings us back. This is the greatest benefit of the incarnation. It's not that we get Christmas, which is my favorite holiday. And it's not even that he saved us from our sins. And it's not even that he frees us from our fears. It's that he gets us back into relationship with God. You know, a while back, there were a bunch of miners that got trapped in a cave. I don't know if you remember it. This kind of thing happens group of men trapped in a cave down beneath the earth's surface. They only have so much air. They only have so much food and water. And so the rescue efforts begin, and they do everything they can to bore down safely into that cave. And they finally make it. And they have made a passage from the surface down into the cave. Now, the greatest benefit of that is not that now these trapped miners can get some rations and live more comfortably in the cave— They don't ask them to send down recliners and an an extension cord and a TV so they can just live down there. The greatest benefit is that now they can be extracted. Now they have a passageway from their cave of of isolation and doom up to the surface of light and, and reunion with their families. Now, many of us misunderstand what Jesus did. And we think that he bored his way down into our sinful world in order to give us good gifts to make us more comfortable down here, still isolated from God, still with no relationship with him. And all the Bible screams out, no, he did everything he did to get you up out of that, back into relationship with God. Now, some of you perhaps have never tasted that, and others of you perhaps have, but have not been living in light of it. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of what Jesus has done, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. As I've been thinking about our overburdened, stressed out, overscheduled nature as people, and studying what the Bible has to say about these things, I did not come away thinking, well, we need to do more, or we need to do less, or we need to do differently. I mainly came away thinking, we need to draw near to the throne of grace. And in your situation, if you are feeling overburdened and overtaxed, the answer may not be that you need to unload something from your plate. The answer may not be some dramatic life circumstance change. The answer may be as simple as you just need to turn around and confidently draw near to the throne of grace. It's a throne. God has power and it's grace. God blesses. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How much of your burden and your stress in life is due to your own sin that needs to be confessed and repented of? How much of your burden is due to fear that is unnecessary because of all that Jesus has done for you? And how much of it is due to a life lived independently from God rather than dependent upon him? A life lived far away from the throne of grace rather than drawn near to the throne of grace. My prayer as we conclude this service and these two Sundays is that we all would, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, whatever kind of need it may be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I know that it is true and powerful, and I pray that it will have its lingering lifelong effects in our hearts and that no one would leave here far from you but that we would all be able to draw near to your throne through Jesus Christ anyone in here who does not know Jesus as their savior Lord I pray that you would save them that you would enable them to see their need for a savior and forgiveness of their sins that you would enable them to place their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and begin to follow him as their Lord. There's anyone here among us who is a Christian but is sagging under the weight of sin or fear or just distance and isolation from you. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts, free them from sin, free them from fear, and gently draw them toward you through Christ. And may we be able to live a restful life trusting in you. Help us to depend on you. Help us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.